Welcome to the podcast of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies at Duke Divinity School. We offer concise and constructive content on ministry and theology to support the ongoing formation of faithful and imaginative leaders. Friends, welcome to this second episode of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies podcast. I'm Joe Carnes Ananias, the Associate Director of the House, and I'm so glad you've joined us. What if politics wasn't a dirty word, but actually an integral part of Christian discipleship? What if our vision of politics expanded beyond simply filling in a bubble on election day, to the pursuit of a more just and peaceable common life, both in the church and in civil society. Today, we bring you an interview with one of our faculty members, Luke Bretherton, who covers these themes and many more in his recent book, Christ and the Common Life. Christopher Beely sits down with Luke for a conversation that ranges from the meaning of politics to the history of Anglican political thought to Luke's own ecumenical and charismatic Anglican formation. If you've ever wanted to think more deeply about the relationship between the church's witness and the practice of politics, then this episode is for you. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Christopher Beely, the director of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies. Uh, it's my great pleasure uh, today to uh, bring you an, an interview with my friend and colleague, uh, Luke Bretherton. Uh, Dr. Bretherton is the Cushman Professor of Moral and Political Theology at Duke Divinity School uh, and the author of the recently published Christ and the Common Life. Yeah, so this book is a great accomplishment, Luke, and it, uh, it does several things uh, all in one cover. Tell us um, the main things that the book is setting out to do and, uh, yeah, how you see that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the a kind of central um, premise of the book is really trying to give a theological account of politics. And so the kind of vision I set out of politics is politics as the negotiation of a common life between uh, competing visions of the good and asymmetries of power. Um, and that can sound a bit complicated, but I think one of the one of the kind of central emphases of the book is that uh, we often think about politics purely in terms of party politics or uh, in terms of what the state does. And what I'm trying to tease out is that is one aspect of politics and a very important bit of politics um, and, and a bit of politics that the Anglican Episcopal tradition, obviously, because of kind of a, a alignment with the state, has been very focused about, focused on. But it's not the only bit of politics. There's also politics as a kind of relational set of practices for negotiating a common life outside of any reference to the state. So whether that's neighbors sorting out a noise dispute without calling the police, you know, if they call to the police, that's a move then to involve the state or law as the means of kind of reconciling difference and navigating a common life. So we can see, look at nomads in the desert, um, uh, navigating access to a waterhole uh, as, as a form of politics through mechanisms of hospitality, 
what goes on in a church? The, should we take the pews out? Should we keep them in? That's a form of politics. And so in that form of politics, it's, it's, there's power, but it's relational power and not so much the kind of unilateral command and control forms of power that is often the kind of central focus of a lot of thinking about politics. And in that respect, I'm trying to think through a theology of a kind of holistic vision of politics that involves both the relational and the unilateral. Uh, and then how different traditions, whether that's Pentecostal tradition, Catholic social teaching, um, Anglicanism, uh, black power and, and black liberation theology have come to understand politics. And in particular, why and how in the modern period uh, we see the church in, in all its forms, and it is all its forms, um, turning to democracy as, uh, as, a, as, as the kind of ideal or normative form of politics and why democracy becomes the way in which the church kind of metabolizes the emergence of the modern world from industrialization to the emergence of capitalism to the emergence of the nation state, um, bureaucratization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These kind of mod processes of modernization. And so in various chapters, I kind of look through how different traditions come to understand democracy and what their particular vision of politics is. And then in kind of part two, I look at particular issues that shape um, or, or inhibit a modern life. So I look at tolerance uh, and kind of conflict between traditions. I look at class. Um, and, then in, and then the third part of the book is really uh, an account of a kind of constructive political theology of democracy for the kind of contemporary moment. And, addresses particular issues like sovereignty, uh, the nature of the people and populism and, and those kinds of things. So yeah, so it's that, that sense of what do we understand by politics? Um, how does democratic politics play into that? And then how do different Christian traditions uh, uh, kind of come to practice and understand that in themselves? And, and here's a slightly different approach to a lot of approaches to political theology, which begin with kind of school, so a liberation theology or whatever, uh, I'm trying to think about living traditions like Anglicanism, like uh, Pentecostalism, and, and how do actually people working within those traditions um, see politics, and then in particular see democratic politics? Well, um, so, you know, I find this book um, really, really cutting edge and current and looking at the current moment, you know, and at the same time making a number of moves that are also, you might not know it, uh, but 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 really classical and even ancient and, and rooted in the tradition. I think there's a real uh, kind of magic in the book between some classical thinking about um, politics, especially in the Augustinian tradition, but these you know present communities and issues, um, as you're saying. Um, one of the points that you bring out, um, I, I really appreciate how you you try to push us beyond. You, you honor distinctions between things like church and world, for example. But you really resist letting that become a dyad. So, um, a dichotomy, a dichotomy. So, dichotomy, I yeah. want to see them as a dyad, i.e., it's like dyad as in left and right. You can't have one without the other. Excellent. But rather than a, a dichotomy. dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think it, it's exciting how the book treads in real politics at those multiple levels and at the same time is doing some serious theology 
uh, and ecclesiology. Can you say a little bit more about, because I think this is where so many people live their lives as Christians, right, in a democratic political space. Can you just say a little yeah, bit more so, about I mean, the tension there between those two? Yeah, so at the heart of the book, there's these kind of three questions that, that really emerge out of doing workshop with clergy, kind of doing a lot of time. I, I come from quite an experience, spent many years over a decade involved in community organizing and forms of grassroots democratic activism and involvement uh, before I became an academic working in uh, uh, faith-based organizing, faith-based organizations, kind of social welfare context. And um, seems to me there are kind of three questions that, that circulate clergy and Christians kind of navigating this, this, these kinds of spaces constantly no, circulating around. Uh, the first is, um, how do we, if I want to honor and cherish my confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and, and the tradition I'm part of and hold that up. At the same time, I want to be a good neighbor uh, to people who have a different beliefs and practices to me. So how do I simultaneously hold up and confess the truth as I see it uh, in, 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 in Christian terms, and at the same time be a good neighbor. And that, that's the question of how do we navigate and negotiate uh, and, and what practices enable the formation of a just and loving common life. So the kind of negotiation of difference. The other question is around power. Um, uh, how do we understand it? How do we, how do we kind of metabolize asymmetries again to move towards a more just and loving common life rather than you know one dominating the other so how do we kind of address issues of domination and asymmetries of power uh, but do that constructively so that you know we actually move towards a more just and loving common life um, and then there's the the kind of question of uh, you know what do we mean by politics which i i, I talked about uh, before and is it just about statecraft or is it um, these kind of relational practices as, as well. And so in, in that, um, in the, within those questions, there's, there's a sense in which it becomes very important how we describe the world around us. And this is where the theology comes, I think, in, in, in very close, you know, is, is deeply enmeshed and entangled in the actual, uh, the, the kind of how we actually do politics together. Um, and so things like a good example is the church world distinction. How do I have a proper understanding of world uh, as a theological category um, and the sense of how the eschaton relates to the present? Um, how do I give value to penultimate goods? How do I value a form of shared life with my neighbors, uh, be they Muslim uh, uh, or Sikhs or secularists or whoever? Um, and at the same time, then, what's the role of the church and its confessions within that? And so understanding the church world, something like the church world relation is key because we get that wrong and say it's all church and unless the world is becoming the church, then, uh, then it's all going to hell in the handcart. And that immediately pushes us into a kind of colonizing relationship with those around us. Um, or we can say, oh, well, the church is just a kind of minority community and we live our own little bubble, kind of de facto relativism, which we have no gifts to bring or nothing to proclaim. There's a self-marginalization and a self-censorship. So understanding that relationship becomes key then to framing 
Christian political witness in, in the contemporary context. And we can see that through, I think, a number of these um, uh, kind of theological, classic theological motifs kind of running through the tradition. And so, as I say, drawing on figures like Augustine and, and, and many others, I think still have contemporary salience because ultimately we have to engage to get our politics right. There's a process of theological description. At the same time, and, and this is a central theme in the book, our theological descriptions aren't somehow neutral or divorced from politics. There are very language we use, sovereignty of God, uh, lordship of Christ. Ecclesia is a, is a Greek term for a gathering of the people of the city. Um, these are all political terms. And so the idea that we can have our, get our theology right over here and then apply it to our politics is wrong. It's when we have this mutual relationship, it, when we're really paying attention to politics and simultaneously paying attention to theology, that's when we can do really good moral and political theology because actually we're seeing how a word like sovereignty of God, do we really mean the same as sovereignty of the nation state? What's the history of that? How are they entangled up within each other? Are we conflating sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of the nation state? in dangerous ways? Are we overly separating them? What, what's going on at that point? So yeah, so hopefully that gives a sense of the, 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 the kind of mutual implication of political and theological language, which we can only discern and discover as we're engaging in both. Great. Tell us a little bit about um, how your, your, your Anglican, the Anglican part of your background, how does that how does that inform this work? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, I mean, I'm a cradle-born cradle, cradle born, uh, Anglican, um, but grew up in a slightly strange house in that they were, my parents were very ecumenically engaged um, and formed very much out of the charismatic movement um, from the 1970s as well. So we would kind of go along to Orthodox Easter. My mother had a great friend who was Russian Orthodox and um, joined their services and then, as part of the early charismatic renewal movement in England at that time, um, was, was very much an ecumenical movement. So praying with Catholic nuns was always a source of great delight to my, to my parents. Um, and so that, that sense of uh, a, a kind of drawing on different parts of, of the tradition and, and Anglicanism being very much Catholic and reformed, and yet also uh, infused with uh, a, a kind of living sense of, the Spirit's presence, whether that was present in the sacraments or present in um, kind of gifts of the Spirit and healing and, and, and this kind of thing, kind of classic kind of charismatic gifts, and, and both of those being treasured. And so that Anglicanism became a way for me to hold those together. And a third dimension to that, my, my parents were very involved in, um, oh, help, it ran out of our front room actually for 15 years. Uh, housing association and that was born out of um, seeing the first generation of um, Afro-Caribbean migrants come to the UK to work in London and the racism they confronted um, in housing and the way they were treated and, and terrible treatment by slum, slum landlords as in the late 60s early 70s um, and so my parents set up this housing association uh, through the church to provide good quality housing to low-income families, and particularly for, for uh, folk coming from Jamaica and Trinidad and elsewhere. Um, and so that sense of 
how the church was engaged in uh, forms of what we might now call social justice, um, but in a very practical, real-world way, and how you had this kind of sacramental sense and this kind of Pentecostal sense. That's always, that's been, that profoundly shaped me and, and kind of, you can hear some of that in the book where I kind of trying to think through how political theology is as much a discernment of spirits as it is a kind of negotiation of the practicalities of asymmetries of power and the like. Yeah, and the kind of experience that you're talking about, of course, this has become a major force in world Anglicanism, right? So what you're describing is both deeply Anglican, but as you say, it's also Pentecostal. And one of the themes that you bring out in the book quite strongly is how a fully Pentecostal pneumatology can resource and give rise to healthy Christian political judgments. So, yes, yeah, so that the pneumatology is key uh, because I think um, one, of the, one of the things that's crucial to understand, we, we often depoliticize, well, two, two things. One is I think we tend to kind of look at Pentecostal and, and, and the kind of Pentecostalization of Anglicanism worldwide or the Catholic Church and see this as a kind of, um, some, some look down on it and, and see it as very problematic and Pentecostals are often seen as so heavenly focused they know earthly good or as a kind of buttress against more um, prophetic forms of Christianity in, in Africa or in America or elsewhere. Um, and I think this is a mistake and misunderstands particularly developments in Pentecostalism in the past 20 years and, and, and doesn't see, you know, we look at social movements like the environmental movement or feminism. Actually, the most successful movement uh, worldwide is, is the Pentecostal church, uh, Pentecostalism, let's say, um, uh, at, you know, beginning the early 20th century or, you know, we can date it further back in its roots in holiness movements. But um that it's exponential growth and has, has had a socially transformative effect. And lots of sociologists of Pentecostalism have, have charted this. But I think there's a, there's a, a sense in which things like healing, um, exorcism, are themselves kinds of political acts. They point to the, uh, the, the kind of wholly imminent power of the state and the market um, and, and, a, and, a, and a source of power the power of the spirit that lies beyond the state and market processes. And, and it seems to me then there's also a very important way in which um, Pentecostalism holds, holds, kind of reminds us of the new work of God, of the newness, and this more kind of apocalyptic. And Anglicanism has historically tended to be more providentialist in its approach and kind of trying to kind of preserve an order uh, and and curate an existing culture and hasn't been very attentive, often hasn't been very attentive to a kind of more apocalyptic, critical aspects of established social, political, economic orders. Um, and uh, I think Pentecost Pentecostalism pushes at that and also reminds us that the spirit can do new things. Uh, and, and what does that mean for politics is kind of an arrant kind of political theorist talked about the kind of issue of natality, of the, the, the need for kind of the birth of the new. But where does that newness come from? I think that in Christian terms, the spirit is the one who gives birth to the new. And we have to be open to that newness, the surprise of that. Um, and so I was kind of very interested in how our Pentecostalism 
kind of works in, in that respect to remind us of that. And what is there a constructive Pentecostal political theology, which often uh, it, it isn't viewed in those terms, but I think actually a lot of recent writing, very interesting dynamics within Pentecostalism. And I try and kind of chart that out to give people a window on the kind of conversation that's going on there. So just go back to uh, just the Anglican piece, because I think one of the things I didn't say was that's important is one of my frustrations. I read a lot of accounts of um, Anglican political theology, it's broadly good, but often framed as Anglican social theology. And they tended to either emphasize one aspect or another. So we tended to either get um, really, it was a kind of Anglo-Catholic Christian socialism story that that was the key story, and then there was this problematic evangelicalism. Or you've got a kind of evangelicalism is the true thing, and it's kind of reformed elements, and really these terrible kind of wastrels over here doing this kind of Anglo-Catholic um, Christian socialism thing. And, you know, that, that was a, a kind of overly baptizing the world. Um, and I've always found, I've never been very satisfied with the kind of accounts of Anglican political thought that, that I've kind of read. And so, Part of what I'm trying to have a particular chapter on Anglicanism and part of what I'm trying to do in that is trying to give a, a kind of fuller account that holds both um, kind of William Wilberforce and F.D. Morris, both um, John Stott and Desmond Tutu, both Hannah Moore and Vida Scudder or Paulie Murray. And so that, that each of these, we've, we've got a multifaceted tradition um, that is a kind of an argument over time about a, a particular understanding about what faithful political witness involves. And so that's part of what I'm trying to lay out. And I think that's very important in this current moment, obviously, with the kind of divisions um, in, in Anglicanism worldwide, is, is to give these readings that show how, how these can be read together, not in oppositional terms, but as a kind of shared conversation that, that itself together curate something of the spirit of Anglicanism. Mm. That's apropos for the current moment, isn't it? As we're, we're in an extended Lambeth year now, <laughs> into 2021, right? We've got another year to work on all this. And I think, I mean, I think, I think yeah, and exactly the, the Lambeth moment is a great reference because one of the things I think has been a failure, and, I, and I'll own this in, in those of us who teach Christian ethics, it, we tend to view politics as a failure or conflict as a failure. Um, and I think that's the wrong way to, to, to think about it. And part of, I hope, is, is the point of the book is to say, look, there will always be conflict. We, we will have disagreement about how to live out this vision of the good. Um, that conflict, as, as finite fallen creatures, conflict is inevitable. The question is the quality and character through and, and the ways we go about sustaining and navigating a common life, and that's politics. And so we need a constructive vision of politics as part of the cure of souls, rather than we do the cure of souls over here, and oh, then we have to engage and get our hands dirty in politics. No, no, no. Politics is part of discipleship. We learn things in politics, whether intra-ecclesial politics or in the navigation of a common life with those not like us, we learn things about who God is and who we are in relation to God through politics. And if we don't engage in politics and, the, and engage in the kind of quality and character of relations 
necessary to engage in a faithful, hopeful, loving politics, we're failing to learn deep theological truths at a kind of experiential and cognitive level. And so that, that I think, is, is really a kind of central, central thrust of the book, is this sense of we can't cultivate theological imaginations and Christian discipleship outside of politics, and when we pathologize politics or give it over to Machiavelli as its, as its true spokesperson, we're cutting ourselves off from a vital arena in which we learn important things about who we are in relation to God and each other. Well, that's such a rich vision and a fertile prospect. I mean, it seems to me that analogously, it, it, it can really serve to open us to that gr- the great reach of the gospel, you know, where God, out of love, decided to become the totally other, right, in order to, to save us. But so often we close our own hearts and close ourselves off to one another, as you're describing, and even to ourselves. And so uh, w- what a great kind of opening vision that is uh, that I, I think really mirrors the basic uh, pattern of the gospel. So that's really rich. Um, let me ask you one final question from, from the other side. So w- what would you hope that um, uh, p- people in the world, uh, people who aren't Christian, would, would come to see in the church in light of this kind of theological politics? So I think um, that's a great, it's a great question. I, I think there's, there's a sense in which because of the ways in which politics is dominated by kind of party politics and ideological divisions, and then the kind of role of the state in all of this, um, broader questions about the meaning and purpose of politics and questions of virtue, what kind of person do I need to be in order to do politics well, i.e. faithfully, hopefully, lovingly. I think it would be uh, wonderful, and and the church, I think, has a real contribution to make to break open the imminent horizon and say, actually, politics in, in this kind of penultimate worldly setting is not all there is. It doesn't, it's not the last word. There is a word beyond this word. And so questions of politics and economics don't determine the meaning and purpose of life. In fact, they must serve the meaning and purpose of life. And when life is meant to serve economics and politics, we have forms of kind of totalization or even totalitarianism, which means that the human is, is, is subordinated to the political and economic. And that, going back to what I said earlier, I think that is a, a central um, move in all, all traditions coming through the 19th century and into the 20th century was realizing in the modern world the huge power of the state and the market to determine life and and in a sense to reduce the human to either an administrative unit of the state, even in social democratic kind of setups, uh, and then of the market to reduce the human simply to a commodity um, and, and, and the ways in which this undermines human flourishing Obviously, at a macro scale, we see that in terms of kind of ecological crisis, but but even at a kind of the reduction of um, you know male female relations to sex and and in the pornographic or whatever. At all levels, we see the commodification and the instrumentalization of life as such. And so, I think that sense in which um, you can't reduce life to politics and economics. There's always a word beyond it, uh, and that. We need horizons of reference, transcendent horizons of reference, 
to ensure that life itself isn't subordinated to the political and to the economic. And I think that is a really, that's a tough fight. It's always been the fight. Um, and that's a struggle that I think Christians can find allies with and be a, a, a kind of reminder to not to kind of um, collapse everything into politics and economics. Mm. That's a struggle we may be engaged in for a very long time. <laughs> An eschatological struggle even, yes. Indeed. Indeed. Well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thanks for taking time. Uh, and uh, it's, it's stimulating and exciting to talk about the book. Congratulations again. Uh, this is Luke Brotherton, Christ and the Common Life, uh, brought to you from Duke Divinity School. Uh, blessings to all for a rich, uh, common life uh, in the hope of the risen Christ and his return. Amen. Friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies podcast. If you haven't already, I hope you'll follow us on social media at AEHS at Duke, or you can visit us on the web at sites.duke.edu slash AEHS. Every blessing to you, and I hope you'll join us next time.